Is this on? No. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, I continue from um, where Rena left off. Talked very clearly and <laughs> eloquently about Vedana uh, uh, last night. So, of course, we understand that with contact comes these filling tones, right? Negative, positive, and neutral. And uh, then comes perception, which is kind of a labeling, um, and thinking. And then from that comes a pancha, or really um, kind of association. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi says that there isn't, actually in the early text, there isn't a definition of papancha, but the, some of the Indian words that um, are in that range uh, have the connotation, uh, kind of negative connotation, usually of falsifying or distorting. So some of the uh, common translation of papancha is uh, proliferation, complication, um, distortion. Um, so when that happens uh, basically association of past papancha informs the present papancha and then the present stuff you know carries on into the future right so for instance um, this morning before the wake-up bell, I was heading towards the North House, is that what it's called, where we eat, to make coffee for everybody, myself included. And um, I heard an owl, right? So contact. And I actually didn't notice the Vedana, because the next thing I did was thought about it and associated it with uh, Izetta asking me, yesterday when she came for the interview if I heard the owl because I'm in, I guess I am in the owl cabin, right? (laughs) So then with that, all that association, then I thought, oh, that's a good thing. Owls mean wisdom, so I'm in there. So, you know, it's it's good connotation, right? So that's kind of what happens. We proliferate on and it becomes uh, more. Now, Bhikkhu Bodhi says that um, the, another way that he would translate papancha is actually objectification, because the objectification, because the root of papancha is the um, idea that I am the thinker. Because at the point in which feeling, it starts at the point of feeling, of Vedana, in there there's a self-reflexive kind of thinking that goes, oh, there has to be an agent that has the feeling. Someone is liking or disliking or is neutral. So the agent then has the object, right? So in that you create, I am the one with the feeling, I am the one thinking. And with that comes then obviously identification, right? What is me and not me? What is mine and not mine? Uh, So, you know, 
the whole sense of self came into that story associated, right? Now I'm a wisdom person because I heard an owl, right? Um, so, um, and then with that, we keep on reinforcing it because then we kind of um, are conditioned to keep adding to that idea, that concept of self. Now every time, you know, maybe I'll start collecting owl things. And when there are no owls, then I don't like it. You know, any other bird, forget it. If you're going to give me a gift of a bird, make it an owl because I want to cultivate, right, my owl wisdom side, right? Maybe if someone tells me an owl is a predator, I'm like, yeah, but full of wisdom, right? You know. So, and with that then comes uh, kind of more of solidifying of the desire towards that. And this is an interesting thing um, that I really appreciate because when he, um, the piece that I was, have studied a lot uh, that Bhikkhu Bodhi writes and he talks about this is the, actually the um, arising of conflict comes from this. And this is the, the place where the conflict happens when there's desire based on a sense of self. And so, of course, you're going along looking for ways in which to um, reify your concept of self. And if someone else's concept of self comes that doesn't meet your desire, then that's where the conflict happens. Right? Um, someone else wants to stay in the owl cabin. Next, next year, maybe, and I'll be like, no, give me Owl Cabin, because, you know, it reinforces. So he says, this is the point in which inner objectification, right, breeds external conflict. Isn't that great? So from this desire to keep on reinforcing a concept of a self, by the way, right, and we just keep on adding to it and we get in conflict with others. So another way I like to think about, maybe less, you know, classic and less, uh, I don't know, almost intellectual way of, of thinking about Papancha is that um, Vedana, right, would be a sense of how we tend to react when there's contact. We like it, we don't like it, it's neutral. And then, Pancha is the tone that then tends to set up because of all the association and all the story that we've come up out of that. Does that make sense? For instance, let's, uh, I think a good example would be like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? We all understand that his, his driving thing is greed, but it kind of pervades his whole being. When you say, so when I say, when I said Ebenezer Scrooge, everyone really had an, a sense of the tone that comes with him. If I say Mother Teresa, we all kind of have a sense of a tone, and, and, and that, that's kind of our feeling we also get when we think about Mother Teresa or Dalai Lama or whatever. So, um, let's see, what else can I say about this? I have some other examples of the process, but I think maybe um, 
Actually, I have a little uh, let's go ahead and go into the meditation because I have a little guided meditation that I think can be kind of fun. All right. So imagine you're sitting in a train station. Maybe on a wooden bench, looking out a window to the tracks. And you hear the whistle of a train coming. What is your feeling tone then? Have you already in an image of a train? What you think about trains? Old-fashioned, slow. My idea of trains is you get to meet a lot of people, interesting people. My parents, when I went to school in Oregon, my parents live in North Dakota, and I take the train across, I think it's called the Midnight Express, something like that. And I remember one of the things I always think about is how outside of every town, there was like a dump yard that seems to be by the train track. I also remember the open sky of Montana. But now you're back in the train, right? You've gone away from the train station, now come back. And you're looking out the window, so your view is framed by the window. And a car comes by, a train car, uh, from the left, going to the right. Just cars going by. Maybe you're neutral at this point to what's going by. And then a car painted on it is the face of George Bush coming from the left to the right. I see some smiles, I see some frowns, so you already have a feeling tone that comes with the image of George Bush. And with that probably comes memories, right? And ideas about his tenure as president, the things that happen. So the other thing about Papancha is that the concepts are always shifting, right? They're impermanent. So if George Bush suddenly came out 
and said, all these years, I didn't know I was gay. <laughs> and came out, and all of a sudden, probably most of us will have a little bit more openness towards George Bush. And when you saw George Bush, not only did you think about his tenure or the association, but then a sense of self probably also came up, right? I'm not like George Bush. I'm a Democrat, not a Republican. or the marches when he started the wars and you went on marches. You're now you're an activist. Right? And the third that tends to happen with Papancha is Dukkha. Where is the disease? Contraction against a certain identity or quality. So Bhikkhu Bodhi says the way to work with this is at the point of Vedana. Instead of viewing feelings as either appealing or not appealing, we think about the causal process for, let's say you have a feeling, right, pleasant, and you go towards it, what might be the result? I see a oatmeal cookie, right? I've talked about how I love eating meditation because I like the textures of food. So an oatmeal cookie, you know, has a lot more texture than, say, a shortbread cookie. So I gravitate. The oatmeal cookie is more appealing to me. So if I'm not aware of my going with that and all the identification that comes with it, I'm a central person, right? And maybe I'll eat it even though it's the last one in the jar. It doesn't matter that there's 20-some other view. But if I think about, you know, the causal, you know, either the sugar will make me jittery or someone might be upset that I've taken the last one. Or perhaps even my image of the teacher, I should be able to renunciate better, 
great. They don't have to be noble or sense of causal. <laughs> then maybe then I would refrain right? and not follow that. So is following the feeling, the causal process, does it bring up more skillful qualities? Sense of generosity, of sharing? Or is it unskillful? Maybe I really want it, that cookie, but I don't want to seem like I'm not generous, so in the middle of the night, I'm going to go. So it's more even a sense of almost stealing the cookie. So just sit, reflect on how a response to liking, not liking, or neutral proliferates and complicates or distorts your perception.
Master Ma and a monk were walking in the garden, in the marsh. And a bird flew up from the bushes. Master Ma asked the monk, the yogi, where has that bird gone? The yogi said, the geese has flown away. The master grabbed the monk's nicely flat nose and twisted so hard that he, she screamed out and became enlightened. The bird, the geese, right? Identify it as a geese, label it, think about it, proliferates. The actual bird, of course, has flown away, but for the practitioner, one knows that one's perception and ideas of the bird is internal. It stays with you or it's in you. Or it's yours. You make it. You proliferate it. You complicate it. You remove yourself from the experience of the bird. Because when I was thinking about Isetta telling me about the owl and my idea of who I might be in the owl cabin, I'm not present for the owl and the sound of the owl. Charlotte Jokobeck says, our life is much more simple if we can just keep it at hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, sensation, thinking, or awareness.
The hoot of the owl is sound. The remembering the conversation or who I am is the noise. We can work with the third foundation by investigating the root. Or here's a way that we practice in Zen, which I offer you. I will say that in this meditation, if at any point it brings up anxiety or a sense of not groundedness, then come back to the breath or the feel of your thigh against the seat or the cushion or your clothing. So imagine you're sitting on a hill and the sky under an open sky. And in the sky, a cloud comes, blown by the wind from the left. You label the cloud as cloud. Thinking begins, right? You can also label the cloud, let's say, as looks like a dog. So then all the association with a dog. Puppies are cute. Or the German shepherd who bit me. 
when I was eight. So if you can just let the cloud be a cloud in the open sky, maybe remembering the vastness of the sky. open up into the vastness of the sky as opposed to focusing on the cloud. But not from aversion, just because the spaciousness of the sky fills you, fills your awareness. So no matter the shape of the cloud, the direction of the cloud, the color of the cloud, there's no noting, no identifying it, no relationing to it. Just let it be in the open sky. When your awareness goes to the cloud, you just come back to the open sky. If you're able, or if it's possible, the sky fills completely, and there's no separation between you and the sky.
at some point even let go of the sky. Coming to the end of the period, so if you need to ground yourself in the body, 